Good morning. Let's take a moment to pray. Father God, we, uh, we thank you for Jesus, for the wonderful treasure that he is. Thank you for the wonderful joy we have in our salvation. Thank you for the chance to come and worship you as a community, to take our eyes off of ourselves and to turn our eyes upon you. For when we turn our eyes upon you, everything is placed in its right perspective. And Father, I pray as we uh, study your word today that we might continue our worship, that we might continue to behold you and make much of you and treasure you, and that you may have your will and your way in our lives. Amen. Now, this is the Doomsday Clock. It was uh, created by a group of scientists, and it represents the likelihood of man-made global catastrophe. It was created in 1947 and originally set at seven minutes to midnight, midnight representing global doom. It's uh, swung back and forth over the years. It's often come closer to midnight when countries have been testing nuclear weapons, such as Russia in 49, India in, 40, in 74, Pakistan in 98, and North Korea in 2007 onwards. In 1991, at the end of the Cold War, uh, the clock was the furthest from midnight it's ever been, at 17 minutes to midnight. But currently, due to recent events in the world, the clock has been set to just two minutes to midnight, the closest it's ever been. The Doomsday Clock. What a handy device. Handy to have a clock you can check now and again to see if the world's about to end. I've, uh, I've watched a bit of play school over the years, and they sure do have a lot of clocks on that show. They've got a hickory dickory clock. They have a, a flower clock. They even have a rocket clock. You know, for a show that's been running for 50 years in the same time slot, they sure do feel the need to check the clock fairly often. It's handy having a clock. You probably have a clock with you this morning. And if I drone on for too long, no doubt you'll feel the need to check the clock because, uh, you know, just like the doomsday clock, the longer I talk, the more you'll want to know, well, how close are we to midnight? The doomsday clock swings back and forth towards and away from midnight depending on world events. But I'm wondering, I'm wondering if you have your own little doomsday clock that swings back and forth depending on the events in your life. Swinging back and forth towards and away from midnight depending on how stressed you are and how uncertain your life is. What's the time on your doomsday clock? Which brings us to our passage this morning in Philippians chapter 3. Paul writes, Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. Though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, 
but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for his sake. I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I will experience the resurrection from the dead. There's a lot in that passage. Let's start from verse 1 where Paul says, Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Whatever happens could include a lot of things for Paul. Um, He wrote this letter from jail. Whatever happens might include being released from jail and being returned to see the church in Philippi. He writes in chapter 2, But you know how Timothy has proved himself. Like a son with his father, he has served with me in preaching the good news. I hope to send him to you just as soon as I find out what is going to happen to me here. And I have confidence from the Lord that I myself will come to see you soon. Paul believes that he's going to return to see the Philippians. And many scholars believe that Paul was released after writing this letter before later being arrested again and eventually executed. Whatever happens could include being released. Whatever happens could also include lingering in prison indefinitely. How did Paul end up in prison in the first place? Well, we find the answer in Acts chapter 21. Paul is in Jerusalem when he is mobbed and arrested for supposedly defiling the temple by bringing Gentiles into the temple. This wasn't true. Uh, in verse 29, tells us that they had seen Paul with Trophimus in the city and assumed he'd been taken into the temple. They assumed, therefore, Paul got arrested. Some justice there. In Acts 23, a group of Jews make a plot to murder Paul, and so for Paul's safety, he is transferred to Caesarea for his case to be heard by Governor Felix. And in Acts chapter 24, Paul presents his case to Governor Felix. And it says in verse 22 that at that point, Felix, who was quite familiar with the way, adjourned the hearing and said, uh, wait until Aesis, the garrison commander, arrives, then I will decide the case. But look what actually happens. Verse 24, a few days later, Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, sending for Paul, they listened as he told them about faith in Christ Jesus, as he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming day of judgment, Felix became frightened. Go away for now, he replied. When it is more convenient, I'll call for you again. But here's the real motive for these gospel discussions. He also hoped Paul would bribe him, so he sent for him quite often and talked with him. Verse 27, after two years went by in this way, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and because Felix wanted to gain favour with the Jewish people, he left Paul in prison. Governor Felix was a crook who denied Paul justice in order to please the Jewish people. In Acts chapter 25, Paul appeals to have his case heard in Rome because he knows he's getting no justice in Caesarea. That's why Paul's writing this letter to the Philippians from jail. 
because he was arrested under false pretenses and left in jail for political purposes. There is no guarantee the justice system will deliver Paul any justice at all. He might be released, but he may simply linger. And whatever happens might include Paul's execution. He's aware that death is a possibility. Philippians 1. For I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honour to Christ whether I live or die. Philippians 2. But I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I wonder how you handle the whatever happens in your life. How do you respond to uncertainty in your life? Because there's so much in your life that you don't control. You don't control your wealth or your work. Share markets crash, investment accounts fail, the economy can tank, you can lose your job, your work might restructure, the company you work for might go broke. 1996, the Kodak Company owned two-thirds of the photography market share. They were a $31 billion company, the fifth biggest brand in the world. They employed 145,000 people worldwide. 16 years later, in 2012, they filed for bankruptcy. They didn't anticipate the rise and dominance of the digital camera quickly enough. Today, they employ just five thousand people. You don't control your wealth or your work and you don't control your relationships. You can't control what your spouse will do. You can't control what your children will do. And you certainly can't control what our sinful world might do. You don't control your health. I mean, you can eat well and exercise, but even that doesn't guarantee health and longevity. I, um, I previously lived in the New South Wales town of Armidale, and just up the road from Armidale is a little town called Gyra, a small little town of 2,000 people. Sitting at an elevation of 1,330 metres, it is one of the highest elevated towns in Australia. That sounds like a great claim to fame, but in reality, in winter, Gyra is a cold and miserable place. Something in the last couple of years has thrown the town of Gyra into crisis. They're out of water. They're not just low on water, they're out of water. They don't have enough water for the community to sustain themselves day to day. Every day, six water trucks drive into Gyra with enough water to keep the town going until tomorrow. Meanwhile, gardens are dead, businesses are struggling, farmers can't irrigate, and there's the very real danger of not having the water resources to fight bushfires. Uh, the New South Wales town of Morundi ran out of water in March. Uh, next month, the towns of Stanthorpe, Warren, Cobar are in danger of doing the same. Uh, by March of next year, Parks, Forbes, Cowra come under serious threat. The New South Wales towns of Tamworth, Armidale, Dubbo, Orange are all in danger of running out of water in the next 12 months. You don't control anything. Not even if you have water in your tap. So what happens when the things that were never in your control start getting away from you? Do you become anxious? Do you toss and turn through the night? Do you spring into action trying to make things happen? 
or do you leave things in the hands of a loving God? Do you rest and relax because God is good and he sits upon the throne no matter what the time is on your doomsday clock? Paul is in prison. His fate is being decided. His life hangs in the balance and he isn't sure what the outcome will be, but yet he is not fretting. How come? Because while some things in his life are very uncertain, the thing he values most is completely certain. And I'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, Paul spends verses 2 and 3 refuting those who were saying that you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. So let's explain that briefly. Uh, Circumcision was part of a covenant that God made with Abraham and his family. God made a covenant with Abraham that his family would be the people of God. God would reveal himself to Abraham and his family and through Abraham's family, God would reveal himself to the rest of the world. And circumcision was the sign that Abraham agreed to the covenant. Genesis 17, God says, You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. So circumcision was very important to the family of Abraham because it was part of the covenant, a sign that you belong to God. But so was keeping God's law. And God's people weren't very good at doing that. God's people throughout the Old Testament were rebellious and stubborn and disobedient time and time again, so much so that in Deuteronomy chapter 10, Moses says to the people of God, circumcise your hearts. What on earth is he saying? What does he mean by circumcise your heart? Moses is saying, that it's not enough to have some kind of outward change or some sort of outward sign to show that you belong to God. You need to undergo an inward change, a change of heart that's brought about by God himself. And Paul is saying in verse 3 that true circumcision involves an inward change brought about by the Spirit of God. True belonging to God is those who worship God and walk with His Spirit. They're the ones who are truly circumcised. They're the ones who truly belong to God. Paul is saying the death and resurrection of Christ is sufficient to bring you into right relationship with God. Nothing additional is required. Paul says we put no confidence in human effort. And if anyone could put confidence in human effort, it would be Paul. He had quite the religious resume. Though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if ever there was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to Jewish law, I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Paul urges us not to put any confidence in our own efforts or our pedigrees. You're not saved by your church attendance. You're not saved by your biblical knowledge. You're not saved by being a fifth-generation member of the churches of Christ. You're not saved by your acts of service or your activism, the number of things you do for God. I'm trying to tell you that we are saved by God's grace alone. Christians are saved by works, His works, the work He did on the cross, not by anything you or I have done. 
Christ is enough. Christ is enough to save Paul and Christ is enough to sustain Paul in his uncertain situation. Christ is enough to save you. Christ is enough to sustain you no matter what you face. The question is, is he your true treasure? I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Uh, Here's a photo of little Travis. And, uh, and what little Travis has done here is he has taken all of his Geelong cat's memorabilia and he has placed it on the family couch. There's a, uh, there's a cup, there's a pair of socks, there's a hat, there's a Gary Ablett video. There's a video, welcome back to the 1990s. There's a, there's a figurine, there's coins, there's uh, posters, there's magazines, there's footy jumpers, there's even a Geelong racing car in there. Uh, little Travis, he was pretty into Geelong. Uh, And in 1992, the Geelong Cats were in the AFL Grand Final against the West Coast Eagles. I was eight years old, and we lost. But not to worry, because just two years later, the Geelong Cats were back in the Grand Final again against the West Coast Eagles again, and the West Coast Eagles, they beat us again. This time, the result was worse than before, but it's okay. Because the very next year, Geelong Cats are in the grand final again. This time we're up against Carlton. Do you remember when they were good? In 1995, Carlton were very good. They belted us and Geelong lost their third grand final in four years. And this was my childhood. Uh, As a kid, football was everything and the week leading into the grand final was so exciting. My team had a chance to win a premiership and that would be the best thing ever. As a child, there was so much excitement in grand final week, followed by so much disappointment afterwards. Uh, in 2007, uh, Geelong won the AFL Premiership. It was their first in 44 years. I watched the game. I was pleased. I wasn't too nervous because at three-quarter time, we were leading by 90 points, and I figured that even Geelong couldn't lose the grand final from there. But I didn't spend much time that week thinking about the grand final or if we won because that week I was doing something much more important. I spent that week in Ballarat running a, uh, running a beach mission. We didn't have much beach, but we had plenty of mission. Here's a picture of Cara and myself in action. We had about 50 kids come along to this particular program to hear about the hope of Jesus, and we saw many kids take big steps towards Jesus and a couple of accept Christ. It was very exciting. What was happening in Ballarat that week was so much more important than what was happening at the MCG. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless. Grand finals come and go. Jesus is yours forever. Your work and your wealth will come and go. Jesus is yours forever. Relationships come and go. Jesus is yours forever. Your health will come and it will go. Jesus is yours forever. And if Christ is your true treasure, then your treasure can never be taken away from you. Everything in your life could be taken from you. 
But if Christ, but Christ is yours forever. And if he is your true treasure, nothing and no one can take your treasure away from you. Paul sits in jail, his life hanging in the balance. Others will decide his fate, but he's not fretting because while some things are very uncertain in his life, the thing he values most is completely certain. Christ is his greatest treasure and Christ can never be taken from him and that's why he can rejoice in the Lord whatever happens. What can they do to you if Christ is your greatest treasure? How can they hurt you if Christ is your greatest joy? How can they worry you if Christ is your firm foundation? What are they going to do to Paul? If they release him, he is Jesus. If they lock him up, he is Jesus. If they kill him, he is Jesus, and he is Jesus forever. Whatever happens, he can rejoice in the Lord. No wonder Paul said, if God is for us, who could ever be against us? Christ is all you need. He's enough to save you and he's enough to sustain you no matter what uncertainties you are facing. The question remains, is he your true treasure? As you face financial challenges, do you stress and strain and worry or do you rest and relax in the hands of a loving father? As you face relationship challenges, do you manipulate and control trying to make things happen Or do you rest and relax in the hands of a loving father? As you face uncertainty with your health, do you rest and relax in the knowledge that Jesus is yours, both now and forever? As your doomsday clock swings back and forth, do you rest and relax in the knowledge that God is good and he's sitting on the throne today, just as he was yesterday, just as he will be again tomorrow? Christ is enough to save you. Christ is enough to sustain you. And if he is your greatest treasure, you can relax in the knowledge that he can never be taken from you. Let us pray. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond this morning. I'm going to pray for everyone who wants God's help to remember that he's enough this week. He's enough this month. He's enough no matter what you're facing. So if you'd like to say to God, I need your help to remember that you're enough this week, then in a moment I'll ask you to raise your hands wherever you are. I'll be asking God to help us remember that in the stresses of life that God is good and that he is on the throne. To remember that Christ is enough to save us and that Christ is enough to sustain us. So if you'd like to say to God, God, I need your help to remember that you're my true treasure and that I have you forever then right now, raise your hands wherever you are. Thank you. You can put your hands down now. Father God, you are good. You are completely loving and completely faithful to us. Help us to remember this week that you are on the throne, that you have conquered sin and death, that you have made a way for us to be in right relationship with you, that you will never leave us or forsake us, and that you are all we need. You're enough to save us and enough to sustain us no matter what we face. May you be our greatest treasure. And I pray that this week we wouldn't lose sight of our Saviour. In Jesus' name, the name above all names, King above all kings who is ruling and reigning now and always. Amen.